So this evening, I would love to talk to you about Jesus, which I know might seem like a bit of an unlikely opening to a talk in a church, or not. Um, But if there is one life in the whole of history that has stood head and shoulders over time, I think it is that of Jesus. And so I want us to come to Jesus this evening. In a world where we're all looking for touch points, for anchor points, for a framework for living, how do I make my way through Freshers' Week? How do I navigate life? We have to interact with this question, who is Jesus? Who is he? And what is his relevance today? If you're an intelligent human being, I think at some point you have to answer that question, right? Who's Jesus? Was he just a Middle Eastern man from Palestine who lived 2,000 years ago and had some novel ideas about a social revolution? Or was he something more? And if he was something more, then what does it mean? What does it mean? And what would Jesus say to Edinburgh today? If he's something more, what would he challenge? It's a funny question, isn't it? What would, what would Jesus say to Edinburgh today? What would he smile about? What would he laugh about? What would make him sad? What of our needs, our questions, our doubts would he address? And uh, with those kind of questions littered across our classroom blackboard, we're starting a new series this evening that's going to take us through up till Christmas that we've called Masterclass. Not because I or anyone else who's going to stand up here is going to give you a masterclass in following Jesus, far from it. Although I hope that as Holy Spirit breathes through me, I might bring some suggestions for us to consider. But because we're just simply going to sit at the feet of Jesus, the master, this term. Who's Jesus? And of what relevance is he to the city? What would he say to the good people of Edinburgh? And so um, this term, we're going to be pitching all the way across the Gospels, the second half of the Bible, exploring the different encounters that Jesus had with different people and saying, what does this mean for now? What would Jesus say to this city? What truth, what challenge, what encouragement would he breathe on us afresh? So that's kind of where we're going. Hope that's okay with you guys. Uh, So we're going to read this evening from Mark 2, which is from the Bible. It's from the New Testament. It's from the second half of the Bible. So if you're not sure where you're going, just turn to a contents page. If you didn't bring a Bible and you've not got one, that's quite normal here. We'll have it up on the screen um, so you can read along. And uh, we'll read that in a minute. But just as a heads up, that's where we're going this evening. But I want to suggest to you that one of the things I think Jesus would be most fascinated by in our culture is the current cultural trend of DIY. We live in a DIY culture, do it yourself. And I think possibly because he spent the first 30 years of his life as a builder or a carpenter, because we see that his dad, Joseph, was a carpenter, inferences most probably Jesus followed in the family trade. Maybe Jesus would have a lot of empathy with those of us who have tubs of kind of irreconcilable missing screws from Ikea units that didn't quite come together and we've just stashed in a box somewhere labeled important stuff that I've no idea what it is, but I'm going to keep it anyway just in case anyone else got a box like that anywhere in their house yeah or they're flat yeah or maybe if you're a student you're thinking what am I going to do with that stuff we'll just put it in the bin it'll be all 
in my house, we call it the box of crap. Basically, everything we don't know what it is, but we keep regardless. But we, we are fascinated with the idea that we can do it ourselves. We can fix it ourselves. And there's something quite positive about that as a cultural trend, isn't it? It says everybody matters. Everybody can have a go. Everybody's opinion and expertise matters. You have something to contribute to society that is important. You don't need an institution or hierarchy to tell you how to live with the good people of YouTube. You can do anything you set your mind to. A DIY culture. I don't know how many of you have seen the How To For Dummies books. Anyone seen those books? They're kind of like in WH Smith. You kind of find a shelf of them. I was telling the 9.30 gathering this morning, which is mostly full of the more senior members of our church family, um, that there is actually a How To iPad for seniors, which um, was a cheap gag, but they all laughed. You didn't. I brought my own encouragement this evening. Don't worry about it. Um, But when um, my husband and I got married, someone had the good foresight to give us this book, How to Do Just About Everything. And believe me, almost everything is in this DIY book. You can learn how to clean a fridge, how to be a good parent, uh, how to run a restaurant, switch to a Mac, get a girlfriend, write a dissertation and get a plane upgrade. I should have lent it to Carl before he went it to the States. Um, but dig a little deeper. And it's a joke, isn't it? But I, I do wonder that this DIY culture exposes us just a little bit. We've, I've set myself up as an expert on my own life. I've said, I've, I've got a need, I've got a problem. And we've all got needs. You've got a need, I've got a need. The world's got needs, the world over in every culture. But no problems. I'll fix it. I'll take responsibility. It's mine to own. I'll work it out. And I, I don't just mean my need for another IKEA shelving unit that I'll have some screws that I don't know where they should go and they end up in a box somewhere. I mean here in Edinburgh, in this city, surrounded by good people with good intentions. Our need for stability and security. Stability and security either for ourselves and for our world. And so we work long hours, we throw our energies into building for a more stable and secure future. But maybe as we try to fix it, and take responsibility, there's less joy in the moment. We don't take risks and we miss out on some of the adventure that God has for us. Or maybe the need to have it all, the perfect job, the perfect flat, the perfect relationship, the perfect group of friends, and we think we should have it all now, right now, at a click of the fingers. It should be ours. And the fear of missing out means that we overstretch ourselves, we overcommit ourselves. There are no limits on what to think we can contribute to. And sometimes that makes us really happy as we try and fix it and own it ourselves. But sometimes, I don't know about you, but it leaves me plain exhausted. The need to have it all. Or lastly, what about the need to be connected? I guess for so many of us, that's really key here, isn't it? the need to be connected, the need to maintain vast networks of social relationships. We live in a digital age. 
And the good thing is that we know hundreds of people and the possibilities are endless and we're so much more connected with so many more people than any other generation. But what if in our need to quench that thirst in us for connection, that actually we we miss out on real vulnerability because we don't know how to do face-to-face, eye-to-eye. We don't know how to dig in for the second, the third hour of a difficult conversation with someone we really love. We don't know how to do that anymore. Our needs expose us because we've set ourselves up as experts on our own lives. We think our needs are ours to own. We're into self-care. We can be on this kind of roller coaster of need quenching. And there are some great highs, don't get me wrong. There's some good stuff in all of that. But there's some pretty low lows as well. And I want to suggest to you this evening that as I've read this passage, as I've sat with it this week, Jesus really wasn't into self-care, but he was into soul care. Jesus was not into self-care, but he was into soul care. So turn with me to Mark 2, and we're going to read it together, asking, what would Jesus say about our DIY culture? What I'm going to do is I'm, I'm going to take the passage and read it in chunks and then make a few reflections on each chunk so you know where I'm heading. So Mark 2, verses 1 to 12, if you've got a Bible and you want to open it, feel free. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. So I'd not really realized this until I dug into this passage this week, but this was actually probably Jesus' own house. This was a bit of a light bulb thing for me this week. He was 30. It was probably time to move out of mum and dad's. don't know how many of you are relishing the opportunity to move out of mum and dad's finally. Maybe some of you here are thinking sneakily, I wish my kids would move out. Um, But basically, Jesus, um, he's been working as a builder or a carpenter, and he's taken a few months out as an itinerant teacher or what they called a rabbi. He's done a preaching tour of the surrounding villages, and he's caused a bit of a stir. He's done some pretty incredible things. He's turned vast quantities of water into wine. I mean, that's like how to win friends and influence people right there. That's how to do it. He's got himself a large social following. You know, his Twitter feed is going places. And uh, basically, it's like he's the local X Factor star returning home. Nobody's even heard of the guy. And then he does this stuff. He comes back home and he can barely get in his front door. You know those videos where, you know, there's cameras on the street and there's flags and there's like women crying and the X Factor star comes in the house. It's, It's a little bit like that. Okay, Jesus has come home. And verse three, some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Mark, the guy who's writing this history of Jesus, is pretty sketchy on details. It's kind of classic Mark. You get the kind of brutal, bare facts. So what we know is that the man can't walk. That's about it. And he can't walk bad enough that he needs four people to carry him. And it goes on, verse 4. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they couldn't get in the door. They made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man 
was lying on. So I've got um, a picture of this just to illustrate for us, because it's quite hard for us to visualize when we've we've grown up in British culture. This is from a kid's book, because kid's books are awesome. Uh, Houses in in Jesus' time, mostly in the countryside, they were one-story buildings, okay? And there was a staircase that helped you access the roof. The roof was made of clay and branches. So entirely possible to dig your way through with a bit of an intention, okay? Um, So entirely possible for these people to do that. So they've dug their way through. The man has been lowered down into the room, clay chippings all over everybody and the floor. And this is what Jesus says. Verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. To which... You might respond, I'm sorry, what? Jesus? Because what I was expecting was something that went a little bit more like this. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, clearly you can't walk there. You've got a bit of a problem with your legs. So have some healing, legs be straightened, pick up your mat and walk. Jesus I'm not sure if you've missed the memo here, but at the divine drive through I put in a very clear order for good legs, okay? Legs of the walking variety. I don't really care what they look like, the aesthetic detail, if they're hairy, if they're stocky, if they're thin, if they're whatever else men's legs look like. Labour the details of that much longer. But basically, legs that walk. Legs that walk. That's what I came for. That's my need. And what Jesus does here is he utterly blows up our DIY, I will fix it, I will take responsibility, I will mend it, culture. Jesus comes to the man right where he is and he addresses his deepest, most innermost core being. Not the need he presented with but the need that Jesus saw right through to. And stick with me here because this is where I think it really matters. We understand it's Jesus' own house, okay? Could it be that Jesus, instead of getting cross about the large hole that has suddenly appeared in the roof of his house that is going to cost like quite a lot of money to fix and the guys basically interrupted his enraptured audience, instead of getting cross, says with a wry smile to the man, Son, your sins are forgiven. As in, the roof's on me. The roof's on me. Your sins are forgiven. But he said it in such a way that everybody in the room, ears pricked, knew that Jesus wasn't just talking about the roof. But he was speaking right to the very core of the man's being that this forgiveness was deeper than a hole in the roof and clay chippings on the living room floor but went right to the heart of the man's need for a savior the man's need for forgiveness the man's need for an authority that went right to the core of his humanity son your sins are forgiven it's on me And 
If that wasn't enough to fry our brains this evening, the story goes on. So let's read the rest of it. Verse 6. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming, which is a pretty old religious word. It just means he's lying. He's lying. Who can forgive sins but God alone? These guys are the theological police. They've got religious ants up their pants. And they've got one mandate from religious headquarters. It's you either accept or you condemn this new rabbi. And right now, they're not happy, basically. Who do you think you are forgiving sins? Who do you think you are? And what Jesus says next blows their religious ideas out of the water. Verse 8, immediately... Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up. Take your mat and go home. Mic drop. That's what Jesus had just done. Line in the sand. In effect, he's saying to them, look. Look, guys. I really can heal on the inside. I really can heal on the inside. And just because you don't believe me, I'm going to heal on the outside as well. I really can heal on the inside. I can speak to the core of this man's being, his need for forgiveness, his need for a savior. I can do that. But just because you don't believe me, look, watch, see, I can heal on the outside too. Your deepest, most innermost need for a savior who's not up for your DIY attempts at life Your need for a saviour who can deal with your soul sickness. Your need to start over and live well again in relationship with God, in relationship with people. That's on him. And just in case you don't believe me, get up, pick up your mat, walk. Verse 12. He got up. Three words. (laughs) He got up took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone and they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. So what does this mean? What does it mean? If Jesus is for real, if he's not just this 2,000 years ago social revolutionary from the Middle East, But if he's for real, if he's really who he said he is, if you're considering that question this evening, is Jesus for real? Does he have relevance today? Does he have authority? Is he an anchor point, the anchor point for my life? Then what does this story mean? I think it means this. Jesus knows the real need in us. Jesus knows the real need in us. Don't don't get me wrong, our needs with a small n and an s on the end, 
for all of you into grammar. Our needs are still important. They still matter. You know, I, I still need connection. I need security. And God knows that I need those things. He wired me in a particular way and he made me intelligent and resourceful enough to think about how I steward my life, how I use my energy to live full and well for people. But my felt need is not my greatest need. That's what this story tells us. Your felt need is not your greatest need. My need for connection is second to my need for connection with my Father God. My felt need is not my greatest need. Jesus came to this man with a big, obvious need, kind of legs of the working variety. And yes, he addressed it, but first he spoke right to the core of who the man was and what he really needed. And We need God. We need God. I need God. You need God. This city needs God. There's no way around that. Guys, that is going to sound offensive to some of you. But that's what this story tells us. That's the relevance of Jesus. We need him. We do. Our city carries a soul sickness that can only be dealt with by the Savior. And, And sometimes Christians have called that sin. And we've talked about it a lot, but it just means our inability to fix it ourselves, our inability to DIY our lives, our inability to make it work ourselves. We can't do it, but he can. He can. God is into soul care, not self-care. Soul care, not self-care. So, as I wrap this up, I want to give you three suggestions. What do I do about this? If this is what it means, what do I do? And probably for most of us, we need to take this stuff away and sit down and think about it and talk it through. But for what it's worth, my three suggestions. Number one, we need to seek God. I really believe that when you seek Jesus you'll find him. So if you're asking that question at the beginning of this term, Jesus, who are you? Then good for you. Keep asking it. And I think my question to you would be, how desperate are you to find him? Desperate enough to dig a hole in the roof of his house? Are you? Am I? We need to seek God. Secondly, our needs expose our need. Our needs, with a small n and an s on the end, expose our need with a capital N. Could it be that the issue presenting in your life, which is still important to the Father, it's not immaterial to him, could it be that that issue presenting in your life, clamoring for your attention, is a signpost from your soul that you need a savior and that life starts with him on the inside? Your needs expose your need. And what, what of his sheer kindness is an invitation to you in that? Because what, what I've learned of God is that God's always making an invitation in that. We're aware of something in our lives. It's like, God, 
stretches down and puts his finger on something, but it always comes with his kindness. He just can't help himself. He's so good. And so what's his invitation to you as you are aware of your need? What's his invitation to you? What is his kindness to you this evening? And then thirdly, rain check. It's bad news because religion won't help you. Because religion wants to fix your needs and not your need. And it always has. God's not into religion anyway. Um, That's why Jesus gets so flipped out with the theological policeman. And I think some of the job that we have to do as a, a church that has a vision to love Edinburgh is in representing and reintroducing Jesus to a city as that decided Jesus is really quite religious because he's just really not. Jesus is all into relationship. He's all into life on the inside, life in all its fullness and complexity and tension and joy. Life lived well. Life lived fully, life lived richly, life lived deeply, life lived together. A life that starts on the inside, at the core. So, welcome to Masterclass, (laughs) how to live with Jesus. And um, as we respond this evening, we've got a bit of time for that. I think it's just a chance for us to say, whether it's for the first time this evening or whether it's for the 51st millionth time this evening, I need you. I need you, God. I need you every day. I need you. And so I want to invite you as we respond. Maybe you'd like to say that to God, to Jesus. I need you. I can't do it on my own anymore. I don't want to do it on my own anymore. So we're we're going to share communion together as we respond. And um, communion is just a really simple meal. It's something Jesus took the very ordinary things of an ordinary staple diet, bread and wine. He liked wine, I think. To remind us of our continual need for him. So that as you interact with bread every day, not just when we have this meal, but every day you remember him. You remember your need for him. So as we come, as we eat, as we drink, as you take the bread and you dip it in the cup to say, Lord, I need you. That's the invitation this evening. So if you know and you love Jesus and you want to say, I need you, whatever that looks like for you, then you are so welcome. You go on in Mark's account of Jesus and his life. And just before Jesus died, when he met our greatest need on the cross, he shares this meal with his friends and he says, Mark says, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, when he'd said, thanks God for the food, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many.
he said. So let me pray as we respond to Jesus this evening together. Jesus, I thank you that you saw this man's deepest need and you see ours too. That you see our needs, but you see right through them too. And you speak to the core of who we are and you're still in the business of doing that. Thank you, Jesus. You're so kind. Every time you do this, it's for our good. You're so kind. And we thank you that you have met and you continue to meet our greatest need, which is for a saviour. For being well on the inside as well as the outside. And we come to you this evening and we say again, we need you. In this city, in this building, in this space at this time, we confess we need you, Jesus. You are the one. We need you. And so I pray, I pray, Father, for where there, where there is great vulnerability and rawness and questions, as we say that, maybe particularly for some of us, I pray that, Holy Spirit, you would come and you'd breathe peace, you'd breathe reassurance to our hearts as we take bread as we drink wine, we remember you, we trust you, and we need you. Amen.